right, open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. So used to saying First and Second Thessalonians, so I had to pause and make sure I was telling you to go to the right location. So Jonah's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Um, the Pew Bible, it's page 726. If you go to the Psalms and then just kind of bear right, you'll find it. Um, as many of you are well aware, page 5 of your worship guide, there's uh, so I always say, if that helps you to stay engaged and uh, attentive to what God is, is revealing to us uh, in Jonah chapter 1 this morning, make use of that, take notes, doodle, whatever it is that helps you stay engaged. And speaking of uh, staying engaged, I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, this is one practice we adhere to here at East Charlotte Prez, um, not because we're stuffy or legalistic about it, we just we think that standing for the reading of God's word is, is a good idea, so we do it. And uh, we typically don't preach on long passages, so you're welcome. Um, we, we, keep, we try to keep on short doses so we can dive deep into these, these portions of Scripture that are on tap for us. So with that in mind, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 1, just the first three verses. So put your attention there. This is the active and living Word of God. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You may be seated, and I invite you to pray with me. God, as we do anything in life, and especially as we receive your word, it is absolutely vital. It's critical. It's hard to overstate how absolutely necessary it is that we would, that we would receive your help in receiving any good gift, the best gift of which is your word, because it would be so easy, and we see examples of this all over scripture, we could have access to your word. We could even study it and accumulate knowledge. And yet, if you don't give us eyes to see it in, in hearts that are receptive, we, we would be laboring in vain. Uh, we, we would actually be making ourselves, as you say, twice the sons of hell um, as, as we already are. Uh, we need you to soften our hearts. We need you to cause us to, to revel in this revelation that you are showing us uh, so that we might uh, have the mind of Christ and live more and more like our, our servant king and our savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray for these good gifts. Amen. Well, obviously it's Father's Day. Everybody's aware of that. And so the opening illustration has to be something manly, of course. I haven't seen Top Gun. Otherwise, that probably just, you know, uh, just by default would be the opening illustration. Um, so, you know, I, tr I dug deep. I, I, I considered some op options. Uh, before I go with what I'm going with, I'll give you the honorable mentions. Clint Eastwood. I thought, man, okay, I could, I could go down the Clint Eastwood path. There's a lot of manliness there. Um, Mike Tyson. I think he's, he's a manly guy. His voice doesn't sound manly, but if you watch him punch people, you're like, I, he's a man. And, um, and I, of course, I thought of Ron Swanson. Um, he's kind of the embodiment of manliness. But uh, I, I decided to go with SEAL Team 6. 
I, I decided to go with SEAL Team 6. There are movies made about these guys. These guys, um, I mean, they are rough and rowdy, and they get the job done. Uh, this, this film, Zero Dark Thirty, if you've never seen that film, it talks about the, the real story of this special forces group that went on May 2nd in 2011 to deliver a message of wrath to this fellow named Osama bin Laden in a place called Pakistan. And as I, as I thought about that moment, uh, May 2nd, 2011, I thought, you know, that, that special forces group had been dreaming for 10 years of delivering this message of wrath to Osama bin Laden. Because as we're all well aware, September 11th, 2001, 10 years before 2011, uh, these terrorist attacks took place on United States soil. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought, now what if when the president of the United States, after 10 years of hunting for this terrorist, had delivered the command to go and, uh, and carry a message of wrath to Osama bin Laden, what if SEAL Team 6 had disobeyed? What if instead of carrying out the dream job, this mission that all the other special Special Forces uh, units were, were covetous of. What if they had abandoned all their gear, hopped on donkeys, and, and ridden the donkeys into the mountains of Afghanistan, you know, and, and hidden themselves in caves in defiance and in direct disobedience to the command? Well, that would be really strange because, you know, SEAL teams, they live for this. This is their, this is their bread and butter. They love to take the, the, you know, they love to execute that. And so that would be really, really strange. And I say that because that's how the story of Jonah starts. That's how the story of Jonah starts. Jonah would love nothing more than for God to very clearly say the Assyrians, and especially that great city of Nineveh, is evil. Right? We've all thought it. All of the Israelites have thought this for a long time. The Assyrians are evil. They are a stench in the nostrils of God. And it would be really Sweet. It would be so delicious to us if God just told us they are wrong. In fact, they are evil. And he's, he's told. Jonah is told that right at the beginning of the story. And furthermore, God says, I want you to carry a, a message of wrath. I want you to go tell them that I think that they are evil. So you'd think that Jonah would, would jump up at the opportunity. He would love to deliver this message of wrath to the Ninevites. Because the Ninevites are the enemies of God's people, and Jonah is extremely patriotic. And that's the first thing I want us to see about Jonah is he isn't just a patriot. He really puts a premium on his, his national pride. He is, he is a patriot of patriots. This is a priority to Jonah. And we know that because of verse 1. Look at verse 1. We're, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and this isn't just any old guy named Jonah. Right? Maybe a lot of Jonah's in his day, but, but this is the son of Amittai. So we know specifically which Jonah is being referenced. And Jonah is mentioned in one other place in the Old Testament other than this, this book that bears his name. It's in 2 Kings chapter 14. And we're told that Jonah, son of Amittai, is the guy who prophesied about the prosperity of Israel. In the days of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II, uh, he held office as the king of Israel, the leader of the nation, for 41 years. And there are two things you're told about Jeroboam II. Number one, he was evil. He was very bad. In the sight of the Lord, he was evil. Number two, he was prosperous. Uh, the, the nation enjoyed a lot of health 
and wealth and prosperity in the days of Jeroboam II. He restored the borders of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. So four decades of national prosperity. And Jonah, we are told, is the one who prophesied this prosperity, is the one who got everybody excited and ready for these prosperous days, the days of Jeroboam II. Jonah is pro-Israel. In fact, you, you see as you study the life of, of Jonah, as you, as you dig into what God reveals about him, you see that Jonah has conflated God's goodness with Israel's prosperity. Let me say that again. God says, uh, Jonah says, God is good, and we know that, because look at how he's prospered us. And we do the same thing nowadays. We, we think blessedness is when God gives me wealth. Blessedness is when God gives me ease and when things are running smoothly. This is an ancient problem. Everybody has thought that blessedness, God's goodness, is basically the same thing as me having my best life right now. Me having uh, immediate gratifying experiences. And some of you, you've studied the Bible a little bit and, and you are thinking to yourself, you're wondering, but isn't Jonah a prophet and isn't a prophet's job to confront evil? And so if we're told in 2 Kings 14 that Jeroboam II is evil, shouldn't Jonah be confronting Jeroboam? I mean, isn't that the, the main thing you see prophets doing throughout all of the literature about the prophets? And it's interesting because, yes, that is right. You, you would expect Jonah to confront Jeroboam, but there's no record of that. Because Jonah's just like us. He's not going to confront the, the leaders of the nation so long as those leaders are giving us what we crave. So long as we're getting prosperity, so long as they are benefiting the economy, so long as they are making us feel the way we want to feel, we're not going to confront them. Jeroboam, Jonah would say, is prospering the nation and that's the priority. So let's think about it like this. In the early 1900s, 1914 to 1919 to be specific, New York Yankee fans would have booed George Herman Ruth because he played for the Red Sox. They're, they're nemesis. They're enemies. And they would have said, the commissioner of baseball should, de should deliver a message of wrath to, to Babe Ruth. They, they, the commissioner should suspend him because he's a philanderer, right? He's a womanizer. He's, a, he's an evil, immoral person. It's, it's a bad thing for a, for a guy like George Herman Ruth to, to solely the reputation of professional baseball, you know, based on the way he's making decisions off the field. But then here's what's interesting. In 1920, all of a sudden, New York Yankee, field, Yankee fans thought, George Herman Ruth is a god. He is awesome. He is the best man we have ever met. Now, now that's interesting. Is that because George Herman Ruth cleaned up his life and, and he stopped being a philanderer? No. No, he was... He was just as bad as he was when he played for the Red Sox. What happened? Well, now he's on our team. And he's prospering our team. Right? This is what we do. We take immoral, evil people, and we boo them, and we say they're bad. But then if they play for us, if they're prospering us, and they're, they're giving us that sense of victory that we want to feel, then we celebrate them. And, and we say, they are the best that, that has ever lived, right? That's, that's the great Bambino. Salt and swat. He's the best. We don't boo them anymore. See, our, hypocr our hypocrisy and our pride is, is flagrant. It's, it's brazen, which is actually a major motif in the story of Jonah. As we go throughout this 
this short prophetic book, you'll see that this is what is very clearly on display in the character of Jonah. Not, not just hypocrisy and pride, but brazen, flagrant hypocrisy and pride. Now, this premium that we place on, on prosperity and patriotism, uh, as a side note, let me just point out that God's people have never handled prosperity well. Okay, This thing that we crave, this thing that we so incessantly desire, let's, let's all acknowledge that when we get that, we don't really, we don't really benefit from that. Uh, Jesus would say, you know, how good is it that if you gain the world, you're actually forfeiting your soul? Or when you gain a lot of wealth, you're actually making it harder on yourself to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for camels to squeeze through the eyes of needles than it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet, we still, we still intensely pursue th these priorities of prosperity and national, um, national acclaim and feeling the victory we want to feel as a people group. You know, the people of God back in the, the days of the Exodus, this is a great example. They came out of slavery. You'd think they'd just be overjoyed and humble and meek to just be out of, of that enslaved, oppressed condition. But you remember what happened when they left Egypt? God graciously allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. They, they rolled out of Egypt not just free, but they had all of the wealth of the Egyptians. They had gold and silver and all these nice things. And do you remember what happened? They took all of that wealth. Bull, baloney. That's what that stands for. Um, they made a cow. And they ascribed all of the glorious redemptive acts of God to the cow. And they bowed to the cow. And God says, what are you doing? This is, this is so toxic. This is so bad for you. It's never been really healthy for us to, to put this sort of fierce loyalty on a clique or a cause or a nation. That, ne that never really produces the fruit of the Spirit. You recognize that? All throughout human history, people do this. They are fiercely loyal to a cause or a clique, and it never produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. It does not produce the good life. And yet, we, we want it. We still go after it. We indulge in it. And the root reason we do this, the reason we indulge and prioritize this, this quest for immediate gratification and prosperity is because we are proud. We want to feel big. The reason you want your version of victory and you want the, the, the version of gratification that you want immediately is because you, just like Adam and Eve, are, are stewarding the lie that you could be God. You could feel big. You could be completely in control of your life. And that's Jonah's... Big issue. Second point, Jonah's pride. Now, we know based on this, this detail that this is Jonah, son of Amittai, and we know because he, he prophesied the, the days of Jeroboam, we know that Jonah's predecessors were these guys named Elijah and Elisha. Now, how does that play into Jonah's pride? Well, Jonah, you have to think of it like this. He would have grown up with posters of the Elis on his bedroom wall. Jonah would have dreamt about being one of the big-time prophets, right? So he would have had a poster of Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel challenging not just a couple of false prophets of Baal, but hundreds of false prophets, challenging them and calling upon his God, the, the true and living God, to, to shoot down fire from heaven on top of a mountain, literally a mountaintop experience, and God did it. And, and Jonah would have fantasized that maybe one day I could do something like that. 
I could challenge the false prophets and it would be spectacular. It would be so impressive and I would be up on the mountain and everybody would celebrate how holy I am and how in tune with God I am. And I would call upon God and God would come through and it would be amazing. Or what about Elisha? There's Elijah with a J and there's Elisha with an S. What about Elisha? Well, Elisha, I mean, you, you respected Elisha. Providentially this morning, the hurdle was respect by Aretha Franklin. So God, he, he reinforced this for me today. I, I want respect. Jonah wanted respect. I think all men, fathers, right? Fathers, you want respect. And, and so Jonah would have had these stories of Elisha in his mind. So, for example, remember that story where Elisha's just walking along and 42 seventh grade boys say, you're an old bald man. They're mocking him. You do not want to say that to Elisha. And so he, he, he says a curse. He's like, well, God's going to get you. And then two she-bears come out of nowhere and rip these seventh grade boys apart. R-E-S-B-E-C-T. Don't, don't be calling me old bald man. All right? And, and Jonah's like, man, that would be awesome. Right? So he's got the picture of Carmel and the picture of the 42 seventh grade boys being killed by bears. And he's like, that's what I want. That's what I want. And at first glance, look at verse 2. It looks like Jonah is about to have his big moment. He's about to have that big um, you know, career moment where he's going to take his seat at the table. Right? This is like when Michael Jordan came into the NBA and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird were going to pass the baton to, to MJ. This is that moment. The Elis are going to pass the mantle to Jonah because he's got this big opportunity to take a message of wrath to the hated Assyrians in that great city of Nineveh. God says, go to Nineveh, tell them that I think they're evil. Call out against them. And you better believe that Jonah would have made haste to Nineveh to carry out this mission if he thought that the Eli version of victory would have been the result. He, he, he would have gone as quickly as possible to tell the Ninevites that their, their deeds and their behavior was a stench in the nostrils of God and that this fire from heaven was about to consume their city. He would have reveled in returning after that scenario to Israel as a national hero. Like he would have been SEAL Team 6 in his day, right? After they carried out their mission, people took to the streets, they celebrated, they were, they were so happy. And Jonah, he revels in the idea that he could, he could be an instrument used by God to tell the Ninevites how hateful they are in the sight of God. But it's interesting because Jonah doesn't do that. What you find over the course of the book is that Jonah has this haunting suspicion that this message of wrath will somehow, mysterious as it sounds, it will somehow result in God showing mercy to the Ninevites. So not to jump ahead, but when we get to chapter 4, we don't have to guess at this. Jonah tells God directly, this is why I was right. This is why I was justified in not obeying you. Because I had a hunch that your message of wrath was really somehow, some way going to lead to you showing mercy to people who are very, very evil. You yourself admit that they're evil, God. And so I was right to defy you. Uh, Jonah would argue that not only is it humiliating to, to go to Nineveh as a prophet and, and to see God show mercy to your... I mean, think of this. If SEAL Team 6 had gone to Abbottabad, Pakistan that day on May 2nd, 2011, and they had bin Laden in their sights, 
And then God said, mercy, mercy. And the triggers didn't work. And instead of executing him, they would have brought him back to the States. And they're like, hey, you know, he's been adopted into the family. He's an American now. We've forgiven him. Well, they would not be national heroes. <laughs> uh, they, well, they would be in witness, relo protective, relocation, whatever that's called. Right? They, they would not. They wouldn't be celebrated. We wouldn't have books and films made about them. Uh, they would have to fear for their lives. And what's even more interesting is that Jonah's not so much just saying, this is humiliating to me, and this is perhaps dangerous to me, but Jonah, you will see in this book, will argue that this is degrading to you, God. See, my big interest, God, is to protect your reputation. That's my big, big thing, is that I feel like you've gone a little crazy, God, and it's up to responsible, you know, dutiful, mature people like me, prophet types, to make sure your reputation is, is intact, you know, that you remain a venerated deity. And so I can't allow you to do this because it's humiliating and degrading to you. It's like that scene in 2 Samuel 6 when King David, uh, he's bringing the ark back to, to Israel and, you know, he's taken off his suit coat and he's loosened his tie and he's rolled up his sleeves and he's dancing in front of the ark. And his wife, when he gets home, says, um, you have humiliated yourself. You have acted, you've acted so flagrantly inappropriate today, dancing in broad daylight in public as the king of the nation. You have, have acted vulgar, vulgar and shamefully. It's completely inappropriate for someone of your station to act like that. And Jonah's having this kind of a moment with God. E even now, in the first few verses, this is what is going on in the heart of Jonah. He's saying, I can't allow God to do this to his holy, holy, holy name. And so Jonah, we read in verse 3, just wants to flee the presence of God. Twice we're told he wants to get away from the presence of God, which is impossible. Psalm 139 makes it really clear. This is not, this is not something you can actually achieve. But, but more than that, I think we need to see that this is the epitome of pride. The epitome or the essence of pride is this idea that I could get away from God, and if I achieved that, I could be my own God. I could decide on my own terms what life should look like. So, for example, I could determine my own identity. I could decide for myself who I am. I don't, I don't take orders from anybody. I know me best. I know what's best for me. And in, and in line with that, you could go down the road and realize, yeah, I also assign my value. I decide for myself what my value is. And, and yes, there are examples where people are assigning themselves too much value. But, but really, the, the bigger issue is, if you ask God, we never assign, assign ourselves enough value. See, all of those identity questions that our culture is currently going through and all of those, those insecurity, self-esteem, value questions... It, they're actually all rooted in the fact that we've fled the presence of God, so we are deeply, deeply, deeply insecure. And so we go around feeling all of this insecurity and all of this shame and all of this self-loathing, and we're living out of that, claiming that we know how life should look and how life works best. And all the while, God's saying, you don't assign value to yourself. You are made in my image. Fact. You are of infinite value. And the reason you are ruining your life is because you're living out of insecurity instead of believing what I say about you, which is that I have all the hairs on your head numbered. <laughs> I value you more than you could ever fathom valuing yourself. 
See, all the worst things in life come from you thinking you could get away from God and esteem yourself more than he would esteem you. And that is flagrantly false. God, when we come to this meal, he very dramatically is saying, you want to know how valuable you are to me? How dare you wallow in self-loathing and try to decide for yourself who you are, how much you're worth? That is absolutely satanic. We also think we can determine what success means. We, we think we will decide what is, what is victorious, what is successful. And, and God says our paradigms of blessedness and success are completely different. Very, very different. You are making life miserable by running your success paradigms. You are forfeiting your soul, trying to gain the world, pursuing your success paradigms. And it's killing you. You need to come under my lordship. That's how the good life actually works. We go so far as to say, God, though we are permitted to be autonomous, though we are permitted to do life on our own terms, you are actually not permitted to be autonomous. This is what is most fascinating about the story of Jonah. Jonah is trying to do life on his own terms while simultaneously telling God, but you actually are not allowed to, to pour out your mercy in the ways you would prefer to do that. I have to police you, God. I have to babysit you. I have to make sure that your good name isn't sullied. I have to make sure that your mercy doesn't actually come to fruition in the life of the Ninevites because that, according to me, wouldn't be good for you, God. Right? We give ourselves autonomy, but we, but we deprive God of it. That is such a satanic reversal. Jesus encountered this all the time. As you guys know, God, um, he didn't just interact with people like Jonah thousands of years ago, but he actually took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And this was something that Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, uh, experienced many, many times. In Matthew 9, as an example, Jesus uh, recruits a very sinful, debaucherous guy named Matthew into his apostolic leadership team. Matthew's a tax collector, and we all know tax collectors. I mean, they are self-indulgent, they're greedy, they're capitalistic. You would never recruit a guy like this to be a part of a, you know, a rabbinical, you know, churchy leadership team, right? Jesus would do better to recruit from the Pharisees and the, the synagogue, but no, he goes out into the streets and he gets this guy, Matthew. And the first thing you read after Jesus recruits Matthew is that Jesus goes to Matthew's house to hang out with Matthew's friends, and they're having a party at Matthew's house. And so the Pharisees are very concerned. They're very disturbed by this. They're thinking to themselves, yeah, how does Matthew's mortgage get paid? With stolen money. What's happening at this tax collector party? People are gluttonous. They're drunk. You're, you're, ruining, you're ruining the holy, venerable name of God, Jesus of Nazareth. You claim to be God in the flesh. And here you are hanging out with the wrong types of people. It's completely inappropriate. And the Pharisees have appointed themselves the police officers of God. So they show up to serve and protect God from behaving in ways that might damage God's reputation. In response to their brazen hypocrisy and pride, Jesus says, for all of your studying, for all of your memorizing the Torah and accumulating theological data, you've completely missed the point. And so he says this thing he's always saying, very offensive to the Pharisees, you need to go back and reread, and you need to learn. Because you've read a lot, but you haven't learned anything. And you need to go and learn what the priority actually is. Go back and read Leviticus, because you missed it. The, the priority, the emphasis, the point of the Torah is that God desires mercy. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, not, not just what do you want, what does God want? What does God prioritize? 
The Bible over and over and over again says God prioritizes mercy. What does God desire? He desires to show mercy. He comes not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in Matthew 9, when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, he's actually quoting a prophet. It's actually a contemporary of Jonah. Maybe you've heard of this prophet. The prophet's name is Hosea. Now, if there were ever a prophet who might want to take issue with God's command, it would be the prophet Hosea. Because there was a woman in Hosea's community who was, the Bible calls her a whore. She was a prostitute. She was an unclean, very, uh, yeah, dirty woman that nobody, nobody thought highly of. And then you take this venerable man of God, Hosea, and God says to Hosea, now I want you to go marry Gomer. We all know who Gomer is. And if you are Hosea, at a, at a minimum, you're, you're at least wanting to push back on that a little bit, I think, and say, are, have you really thought about this, God? I mean, have you, have you thought about what people might say if I do this? <laughs> I mean, how does this even work? How am I supposed to, to enter the tension of what you're calling me to do? Because this is really confusing. How do I maintain all, all of the, the righteousness and the holiness that you talk about and then make a decision like what you're commanding me to do, to go and marry Gomer. And see, this is, this is the mystery of God's desire, God's priority to show mercy to sinners. God says, I don't want to just talk about mercy. Hosea, I want you to go marry Gomer. I want to display, I want to demonstrate and dramatically show my deepest desire to show mercy to sinners. So I mentioned that story of David dancing in front of the ark and how his wife chastised him and said, you are so shameful, that's so vulgar, that is so inappropriate. Do you want to know what David said to his wife after she confronted him? He doesn't apologize. The people pleaser in me is like, man, that's awesome. Because I would have just been, sorry, honey, sorry. I'll never do it again. But that's dishonest. You know this, right? People pleasers are lying to your face all the time. Um, they're just telling you what you want to hear. But, but David doesn't do that. He says... So you have a problem with that, huh? Well, this, this, this is not going to go well with you then because I'm going to make myself yet more contemptible. You thought that was bad? We're just getting started, babe. <laughs> Honey, I'm going to make myself even more abased. See, that's what God's doing in this meal. We, we, we have a problem with God's mercy, body for us to eat and his blood for us to drink. Jonah has a problem with God's mercy. And, and God's going to say to Jonah, oh, we're just getting started, babe. I'm going to make myself even more contemptible. You're just, we're not even to the summit of this mountain. The summit of this mountain of God's insistence on being humiliated because he has a heart to show us mercy, that's here. There's one thing we do as a church super repetitively, and it's this. It's not study the Bible so that we can feel self-righteous and theologically elite. It's, it's this. We come to the meal where the Son of God says, you have to eat my broken body, and you have to drink my blood, or else we aren't friends. You have to get in on my mercy 
or else you are absolutely dead. You are a goner. You go to hell unless God atones for you. And that is not, that is not this like heavy-handed judgment. It's mercy. It's the lavish mercy of God. You, there's a lot of people who think my big problem with God is he's too heavy-handed. He's, he's too judgmental. No, that's not your problem with God. Your problem with God is that he's scandalous in his desire to show mercy to sinners. The thing that, that you take issue with God on is what Jonah's taking issue with God on, which is that he wants to show mercy. He doesn't just want to talk about it. He actually wants to fully show mercy in the most real, relevant, and tangible ways to people who don't deserve it. If you asked God, and certainly Jonah would have asked God, isn't the priority through Scripture, isn't the priority on Israel, not Nineveh, your chosen people, Israel? If you ask the Apostle Paul, isn't the, isn't the emphasis on you know, God delivering his promises first to Israel? They'd all say yes. But then you get into the details of that and you read something like Romans chapter 11 and you hear God say this. Yes, the emphasis is on Israel. So here's what that means. God's going to consign Israel to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them. That's what that means. Mercy is the theme. Mercy beyond anything you can fathom. Mercy beyond measure. That's the theme. When God says, first my promises come to Israel, they are the first of all who will be consigned to disobedience so that I can carry out my desire, which is to have mercy on them. If you ask God, isn't the priority on upholding your holiness, like being perfectly just, God would say, yes. The priority is on being perfectly just. So in 2 Corinthians 5, God says, I'm going to make Jesus perfect, sinless Jesus, who knew no sin, I'm going to make him to become sin. He's going to take my justice, my wrath, so that you don't have to. And so you're going to feast on the fact that I absorbed my justice so that you don't have to. Yeah, the emphasis is on justice. And the recipient of that justice is Jesus, not you. You're the recipient of mercy. God desires to show you mercy. So before we come to this table, basically just two self-examination questions. Number one, and this is a big one, it's not the biggest, but it's really, really big, and it's oftentimes a neglected question. Will you let God show mercy to sinners? Will you let him do that? We all act like, yeah, you know, God's cool. I have no problem with God. False, false. You actually read the details of how God wants to behave and how he wants to, to wield mercy in the lives of people who are flagrantly evil like the Ninevites. By the end of the story, y'all, we're going to see Jonah protesting the mercy of God. There's a lot of people who show up and they sit in church and honestly, if they were being, if they were being authentic, they, they would show up and they would pick it outside of churches. Maybe they say, don't go in there because they read the Bible and in the Bible it talks about how God wants to save sinners and show mercy to people who are evil. And there's a lot of churchy people who really don't like that. So be honest with yourself. Do, do, you, do you want or will you at least allow God to show mercy? To people, because that's what he desires to do. The alternative would be to to protest, to to I guess say protect. I'm going to protect God from being inappropriate like that. I hope you'll choose the former. I hope you'll say, yes, as hard as it is, I do want God to show mercy. And the bigger question is this: Will you receive His mercy? Uh, before you come to this meal, you really have to ask yourself, 
am I so bad? Do I agree that I am so dead in my sins that the only way that I could be saved is for God himself to come and lay down his life for me? And let's be really clear. This is, it's not that God's going to give you a whole lot of really good advice on how to save yourself. That's how we tend to think of salvation sometimes. Uh, you know, God's going to give really mature people like me a lot of tips, and then I'm going to apply those tips because I'm a good, mature person, and that's how I will be saved. This, that's not what's being displayed here in this meal. This meal is saying a very scandalous, gruesome, graphic thing had to happen in order for you to have peace with God. And if God shows you this peace, it means that he's having mercy on you. You're a charity case. And can you not just accept that, but can you celebrate that? Can you delight in the fact that you depend on God to that degree? If that's you, you're invited to come. If that's something that you're really not into, then I have to warn you, if you, if you partook of this meal, you would be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. But if you are hungry for God's mercy, it is, it is dramatically available to you in the body and the blood of Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for... Uh, like Flannery O'Connor would say, uh, shouting to the almost deaf and drawing startling figures to the almost blind. Uh, we are dense. We, we are like Jonah. We are like Jonah. We, we have a religiosity that we're kind of proud of, and we have ideas about you know, how victory and success and a pious life should look. And then we read about your love. <laughs> we read about the prophet Hosea. We read about your mercy to the Ninevites. We read about Jesus interacting with the religious leaders of his day and having very sharp disagreements because your mercy is at, is at the heart and the center of what you want to do for us. And uh, we ask God that you would genuinely cultivate a robust appetite in us for your staggering grace and your amazing mercy. mercy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.